and welcome to the Psych and Business Podcast, where we highlight the integration of psychology and psychological principles into the world of business and organizations. I'm your host, Dr. Ernest Wade. I'm really happy to introduce my guest today. She's one of the really great guests that I met when I was last at the Society for Psychologists and Leadership Conference, and I just felt really comfortable when we talked, from the very first conversation, actually. Her name is Dr. Marlene Thorne. Dr. Thorne has had a long and extensive 48-year career, mostly in the Washington, D.C. area, spanning work as a therapist, manager, program and policy development, teaching leadership programs, and consulting in national and international work. And I'm really hoping we can hear a little bit about some of that international work today. Now happily retired, living in Key West, in her family home where she grew up, she engages in paying back with community volunteer work. Marlene has two sons in their mid-30s, with one living in Canada and the other in the D.C. area. Marlene, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks. It's good to be here, Ernst. And I'm so glad to have you. Thank you, Marlene. I'm so glad that that you're here. I think you have had such an amazing career that I would love to hear a little bit of, a, a little bit about it. But before we dive into that, I really want to hear about your journey into the world of business. Yeah, it's um, yeah, it was quite a journey. Um, you know, I was a vocational rehab counselor was my master's and my training. Mm-hmm. And um, when I went to DC, that was my very first job. Uh, after interning in Atlanta. And um, while I saw clients, I always had a kind of a creative urge to get groups together, you know. So at the work evaluation, I thought, why should I see clients individually? You know, you had to, and I did, Mm -hmm. but to get them together to learn from each other, which Mm -hmm. was sort of a unique thing, if you can believe it, in the early 70s. Hmm. And um, then I went on to Saney's Hospital, and then I spent five years at Gallaudet College working with inner-city deaf children and their parents on setting up creative programs. I somehow did my work in three days, 10, 12-hour days, so that I could spend a couple of days a week creating fun stuff. Mm. And in that process, after burning out, Um, I started thinking, how can I get into organizations where there are healthy people who also have problems? What can I do to go back to working with adults to kind of help them in a normal, functional workplace? Mm -hmm. And it just so happened I had started doing some consulting in the summer and One of the people I was consulting with at the Washington Post said, you need to take this job. And I applied, and it was for career and organizational counseling at the General Accountability Office. And I got the job. It was a creative startup program. And besides doing the counseling and referral through an EP. employee assistance program, an EAP Mm -hmm. program, Um, I was consulting to the top managers. Uh, We were in a big change effort. And the um, assistant comptroller general at the time liked what I had to say. And before I knew it, I was consulting regionally to all the top managers across the country. 
And then I had an intern who said, you know, you've finished your P. I was doing my PhD at night. Said, mm-hmm. you've finished your PhD. This is the job for you. Because I had done a number of creative television programs for deaf children and a communications television program for managers. So she said, you need to apply. And I said, I'm tired. I want to sit on my laurels for a year. She said, no, you got to take this job. So I applied and it was at the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Had nothing to do with counseling. They had fired everybody. And I was hired to put the program back together again, which was to get managers in public broadcasting prepared for all the new media coming down the road mm-hmm. and to get them to compete as if they were in private sector, not in nonprofit. Mm-hmm. So I got into management stuff and policy and presenting to the board. Uh, you know, after a couple of years, that was done. And I moved on to the next big job where the organization went bankrupt in the first two months. And then I oh. ended up at GE. Because again, they were on the cutting edge of, uh, they actually in the early 80s had an electronic communication system, which we called QuickCom. Mm -hmm. And I was put into quality assurance and management and leadership development training. But I already had consulting work and the IMF called me and I said, oh, now what do I do? And um, so off I went to the IMF, and I thought, oh, that's seven years at the max. But they kept me moving around. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just a wonderful learning experience with 157 cultures. So in any way, what were you doing there? It was to um, I was a consultant on a, a weekly basis on a mm-hmm. one day a week. They didn't have vacancy. It was like dark ages. And this was 1984. They didn't have um, mobility. They uh, had fiefdoms. They had a lot of things going on. And I was the consultant to a working group. So I made a lot of recommendations. And they picked up on it. And they said, well, now we want you to follow through on them. And I said, (laughs) okay. So I jumped in and my work initially was to set up management and development training. They had none Hmm. and they had a lousy training program. And I thought this could be seven years. Well, it was 25 years. It took seven years just to get them. Well, it was actually four years before any of the managers would even let themselves call themselves managers. They were PhD economists, and that came first. And everybody was an economist, and nobody wanted to lead or manage. You know, it was very hierarchical. Mm -hmm. And then it brought in the Management Assessment Center, and in the early 90s, well, prior to that, they moved me to another division to fix that, and the former Soviet Union dissolved, and I had to redo all the policies Um, to recruit more people to go to what was then the wild, wild west. Mm -hmm. (laughs) There was no banking, no housing, nothing. Um, 
and posted, opened up, oh gosh, we went from 27 posts overseas to 87 in 18, 18 months. So I had to get a team of people, IT people, lawyers, um, uh, it was general facilities people, um, benefits people all together as a team on a weekly basis to get all the stuff in line to get these people out there. So it was exciting, but then they wanted, (laughs) they wanted me back to bring in, um, new development programs for managers. It was so successful Mm -hmm. what we did. And I have to credit the guy who hired me, who was an economist, who knew how to maneuver in the organization, because I was the first woman in the department. And there were very few women in management. um, And they weren't in the upper management ranks yet. Mm -hmm. And they were economists. So I was kind of an outlier. Um, but they had done a survey. They wanted a whole bunch of new programs and I got picked (laughs) to go back in there and uh, be a deputy division chief. Mm -hmm. And we just hired up and, um, brought in the management development assessment center, brought in coaching. It was real exciting. And, um, then I continued to work on the policy side. Um, and then in the coaching, I had external coaches because I, I was involved in hiring and promotions and, um, getting people who weren't performing to leave. I was helping the departments go through a process that I still Mm -hmm. teach in the transition course. Mm. Um, so it, you know, it just flowed from one thing to another. And the more I could get into, the more exciting it was. And I learned so much. Um, and people would say, I had a couple people who I mentored who then left and got their PhDs in psychology. And they'd mm-hmm. come back and they'd say, how do you do it? Nobody understands what you're doing. And I go, yeah, it's a lonely world out here, Hmm. you know, but fortunately, SPIM, Spill at the time, uh, had a brochure that came across my desk and I found some other people who were also out there as Lone Rangers doing some, some of the similar things. And that was 90, that was about 93. And um, I was hooked. You know, so with that kind of support from our colleagues, it was real easy to just have a good time. But I knew when I could retire at 62, I'd be off and running and consulting again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I don't know. It's kind of magical when I look back on it, but it was a lot of hard work. Um, it sounds like a lot of hard work, but it also sounds like a lot of really cool and, and interesting experiences. I mean, yeah. you've done so many different things. And, and I mean, what I really enjoy about that is it seems like you've continued to grow and learn from different experiences and to help that build you up. Yeah. And I think you said something about what's the one tip, if I could interject that in here now, mm-hmm. yeah, is to keep on learning. Mm-hmm. And 
there's still so many exciting things out there. It was like when you talked about artificial intelligence and I knew it was coming down the line, but that's like so exciting and so fearful, you know, the good side of it and the bad side of it. And now of course it's on television all the time and in the papers. Um, But you know, if you can get on the cutting edge and foresee what the problems are going to be, you're there and ready to help. And yeah. that's sort of, I mean, I kept searching for the right place and they were all right places for the right time, but they were never going to be enough. Mm-hmm. Um, except the IMF kept me pretty busy for 25 years. <laughs> yeah, that's a good long time. I, yeah. I'm really interested yeah. in hearing a little bit more about um, how you how you transitioned into leadership and management yourself, because you, you said you were first really doing therapy and then you were working in, um, in broadcasting and then you had to become the, a leader yourself to, and who, who eventually helped other leaders. How did you make that transition yeah. yourself? Well, I'd say it was prior to public broadcasting. It was when I was in the general accounting office. I learned mm-hmm. a whole lot uh, about effectiveness and efficiency, but mm-hmm. I, um, we were becoming a certified um, internship program for licensing because I was a psychologist there. Mm-hmm. But my boss was the first woman division chief. She and I are still good friends. Um, and she didn't want to give up her therapeutic practice. So mm-hmm. she decided she would work two and a half days. She negotiated that back in the day in mm-hmm. 78 when you didn't work part time wow. in the government, particularly if you were a woman. And uh, she managed that, but that meant the other two and a half days, I was in charge. Mm. And we geared from two and a half psychologists to seven in a year. Because we were, that's how the demand was in that Mm -hmm. organization for the work we were doing. So I was able to learn from her. She was a terrific manager. Um, And from her boss, who was also a terrific manager. So, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of it was their coaching. So when I went off to public broadcasting uh, to set up programs, I knew how to do an audit. I knew how to be effective and efficient. I knew Mm -hmm. how to manage people. And um, I knew how to manage up, which Mm -hmm. became Mm -hmm. more and more important, particularly as I went and moved on to the IMF. Yeah. But I learned about boards when I was in public broadcasting. So That's, each each organization built those skills for me. Yeah. And so, the people. Uh, it was good. I had a good, I've had bad managers and mm-hmm. I've had good ones. And I've learned from both mm-hmm. about me. Yeah. Yeah. I think you, you learn you learn just as much from the good ones as the bad ones. Like you know, you learn what to do from the good ones and what not to do from the bad ones. So I think that's that's a really valuable experience. I'm interested in learning a little bit more about um, your work when you were working with The Economist, because you mentioned that it took them quite a significant amount of time before they even would recognize themselves as managers. How did you get them there? Um, When I was at General Electric, we were working, um, it was at General Electric Information Services Company that eventually didn't meet Walsh's, you know, your number one or your number four. <laughs> so eventually, that 
part of the company was sold long after I left. Um, but we were working, that company decided they were going to get rid of all management training, if you can believe it. All management training. They decided managers were born, not made. And then the new president came into that part of the company and decided that, no, we could develop managers. So there was this other woman and I who are still friends that met up at GE, and we were told you would put management development training back in. Well, we had two great consultants called the Kappa Group, and we put this program together, and of course, everybody went through it. So when Mm -hmm. I went to the IMF and was told to put a management development program together, I hired these two consultants. And it was kind of a a five-day intensive training. Mm -hmm. And we went to the middle. Uh, We didn't go to the top. And my boss was right on this. He said, no, we're not starting at the top. They're ready to retire they're ready to run for president in their country or be financial ministers. We're not going to waste our time with the top. We're going to go to the middle and grow them. Mm. And that's what we did. We dumped them in this course. And then we had the follow-up training for them. And then eventually they supported because it all had to be, everything had to be support. It's like the UN, Mm -hmm. not as, Mm -hmm. not as bad. In terms of getting things through, but we grew that middle group, then then supported more management training. They supported uh, the assessment center. They supported mm-hmm. the coaching. They supported the ongoing consulting. So we built a group of people through that management program. They mm-hmm. got it. They got it, and they started to support all the other things that go into uh, a good management and organization system. And many of them, there's a couple of them that are out there. Uh, one of them ran the Harvard uh, Foundation and raised money after he left. Mm-hmm. Another one became a president. Two of them became presidents of countries. Wow. And, um, and they used the coaching skills that they learned from their coaches. They yeah. come back and they say, you know, I've been coaching Nikki in, in Japan. Mm-hmm. You know, I've been coaching um, on Wall Street. I've been coaching. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they put themselves and it, it's hard to take, you know, economists have a financial equation. Yeah, yeah. Psychologists have a motivation equation, mm-hmm. and it was hard to marry the two concepts sometimes because mm-hmm. we come from different um, different frame of references. Yeah, I think that's that's a really interesting point. I think sometimes I've heard a lot of dissent when it comes to providing trainings for for managers, especially because as as you said, like the the managers usually just are are more. Um, clinical or they're more focused on doing whatever kind of specific work that they have. And it's, it's hard to try to get them to focus on the human aspect, right? Cause managing, you're managing people. And so I'm wondering, cause you have such great expertise in developing these programs. How do you make them effective? How do you make sure that the, the programs really uh, can provide value to the participants? Well, a couple things that I did one, 
you have to have a champion. And the guy who hired me mm-hmm. knew how to talk their language and was well-respected as an mm. economist himself. And the other thing I did is I took two economics courses at okay. GW so I could learn how economists analytically think. Mm-hmm. And I would present something to him and come to a conclusion. And, you know, like, let's just say one to 10, one yeah. being the start here. And he would say, well, I've been thinking about it too, but his 10 was his number one. Mm. <laughs> and it was constant. Well, let's talk about this, you know, because psychologically, human wise, you don't start, you don't make 10 number one. Right, right. But it was just the analytically. <laughs> uh, and I did that with the accountants too. I, you know, they, they're technical. It's their technical expertise. So I had to learn how they think. And the way I got things through, and I'm not a numeric person, mm-hmm. and I don't like it. But can <laughs> I do it? I can do it now. And I always start with the economist. You know, I would have to get the numbers in there because without mm-hmm. the numbers, they go they go like this. Yeah. And so I would start small and I would show them the success of the numbers. Mm -hmm. And the other thing I learned was to always have a couple naysayers. We always had committees, working groups, Mm -hmm. when we were doing anything new. And you don't want everybody thinking alike because the people out in the organization that need to eventually approve it yeah. And get buy-in. Don't think like that. Right. So I always put naysayers in my working groups. Interesting. Because there are a lot of naysayers in organizations. Mm-hmm. And if you can overcome the naysayers in a small working group, you learn how to overcome the naysayers in the organization yeah. to get two-thirds of the people to agree. And then once it's agreed, I tell you, this group implements. Mm -hmm. You know, it takes you a long time to get it in. But once everybody agrees up and down, they're in, even when they ought to be getting rid of the program. I said, we'll know it's successful when the following things happen. But then it's hard to get rid of a program <laughs> once it's, it's once you no longer need yeah. it, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, so, but I thought by the time that happens, I won't be there anymore. <laughs> it won't be. <laughs> yeah. So I learned how to use naysayers in a group to maximize acceptance mm-hmm. when it would go out to the organization for final stamp and approval because they all had to go up to management for the final right. approval. Uh, so, so, so that's really interesting. So, so I'm hearing you really need to make sure that you can speak the language of the group that you're working with uh, and then make sure that you're accounting for the different voices that you're going to get because not everyone's going to love it, right? So you need to make sure you have some, some naysayers in there so that you can learn what their concerns are so that you can address them. That's and then really right. Building. That's right. And then you throw in, in any working group, you might be the only 
female, U.S. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Every other member of the working group is not of your culture mm-hmm. or your sex, and therefore comes from a frame of reference that's going to want to make decisions differently just from the way they were raised, yeah. number one. And then you throw in, oh, my God, economist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <And then laughs> Multiple layers there. So the honest to God truth is it was challenging mm-hmm. and frustrating, but challenging. And people used to come in. I'd hire a consultant for some. They'd say, how do you, how do, you do things here? How do you mm-hmm. – how come you're so different and getting things done? And I said, well, they either like me or they hate me, but they're getting what they want, you know, because I was not of their persuasion, you know, just. I think you were also, you were also able to demonstrate value. I mean, you've talked about the people that you worked with and and what they've gone on to accomplish a lot of it because of what you, you were, they got from, from the program. So you were able to demonstrate the value um, that you provided. Yeah, I think so. Um, I took a lot of hard knocks too. So yeah, yeah it's, it's not easy and you, and you really have to, um, not everybody's going to like you for yeah. sure. Uh, yeah. and I've had people that retired and, you know, we're, we're friends all over the world. I can mm-hmm. basically go anywhere in the world and, uh, meet up with somebody or stay at their house. And I've done that. Um, but some of them will say, I always liked you, but I didn't always like what you did or had to do, mm-hmm. but you were always fair. So mm-hmm. I was pretty consistently fair. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I clashed a lot. The IT uh, person, one of them, and I clashed a lot. But when it came to who should be promoted to second in command, and I was on those committees mm-hmm. for senior hiring and executives, I was all for him to be the senior executive. Um, and when he left, and we're still friends, we're, we're friends now. We were, you know, yeah. button heads back then. Mm-hmm. Uh, he said, I didn't always like what she did, but she was really fair. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So yeah. I said, that's what, a, you know, you've got to have that consistency of fairness and honesty and, you know, build a lot of trust. Credibility was key to earning the credibility with these guys. And they were mostly Yeah, that's guys. a good mark. That's a good mark to leave behind. And uh, I, so you mentioned that you, you've done a lot of traveling and you also mentioned the, the, the importance of culture. I'd love to hear a little bit about your work in New Zealand. I mean, I know that you've worked there in in training psychologists, transitioning to management. Yeah, well, the New Zealanders were easy. That was, you know, a week and a half of actual training. They were psychologists, many of them, like in the U.S., now Mm -hmm. having to supervise uh, healthcare management and being put in positions of, of that rather than doing the therapy themselves. Um, so that management course that we do, that transition course, um, we redid in a day for them. And we uh, trained um, 30 in Auckland and then went down to Wellington, trained mm-hmm. 30 there, and then went down to Christchurch and trained 30. Um, so the training was pretty rapid, and mm-hmm. we offered 
some coaching. Dee went back. Um, they asked her to do the work engagement part. And Dee went in, into a conference on Zoom across mm-hmm. from wherever Dee was living at the time. Uh, and it was well received. Um, mm-hmm. my, my other work, um, again, somewhat, you know, just because you're you do things and people like what you do or they don't. Mm-hmm. And I had a, a boss um, when I worked in the, when I was doing the uh, offices out in the field in, in Russia. And um, he and his, he got a big job when he retired at um, the International Fund for Agricultural Development in Rome. And I sent him a note and said, Great. So glad you're there. Hope you and Sue are having a good time. And if you ever need a consultant, you know where I am. Because that's what I did with him when he had changed positions in the IMF. He emailed me back, said, I need one and I need one in two weeks. I said, (laughs) I'm on another reorg job right now. But I said, I'll be finished in three weeks. I'll pack my bags and I'll be there. So I went to Rome for four months <laughs> and did reorganization and, you know, some policy work for him mm-hmm. and uh, probably would still be there if um, I hadn't been president of SPIM that year. And mm-hmm. I had to come, you know, president-elect, I had to come back and finish the program uh, mm-hmm. for the conference. <laughs> so I left in December. I was there about four months. Or I'd still be there. Marlene, you've done you've done this work for such a long time. How have you seen the work that you've done working with leaders and the engagement and the accepted of of the work that you know you do as a, as a consultant? How has that changed over time? Yeah, uh, I think for me, what I was seeing is. Um, There's a greater need to move faster, think faster. Um, There's so much info coming Mm -hmm. and that there isn't sufficient time for the leaders to process it. I do believe sometimes not doing something quickly Mm -hmm. lets you digest it. And in my case... Problem solving for me happens off the job. Mm-hmm. I'm generally taking a shower. I'm on the beach. I'm, you know, sleeping. And mm-hmm. and it starts to all pull together as a solution that'll work. And I think leaders today uh, feel under pressure to have the right answer, the right direction too quickly. Mm-hmm. And I think stepping back sometimes and saying, you know, let me think about this and then think about it deeply Mm -hmm. before acting. Uh, But oftentimes they don't have the the value of time for that. And the coaching I was doing with um, the executive coaching I was doing with Under Armour, you know, because they're headquartered in Baltimore um, I felt that from the young ones in particular, you know, cause they're used to, 
you send a message, somebody sends you a message back, they ask a question, you answer it back. You know, yeah. it's like this. Um, and to try to coach them to step back was hard because mm. that's not how most people are responding. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's a problem throughout the world right now. Um, and I think the biggest problems require maximum dialogue and mm -hmm. slowing the process down a bit uh, to come to consensus. Yeah. Uh, and and we just want things done too rapidly. I think that yeah, adds it, pressure. I, I completely agree with that. I talked previously about unconscious cognition, which is where when you have when you have expertise, you can you, your mind continually works on problems. Uh, and like you said, you're you're in the shower, or you're doing something else, you're not even actively thinking about it, and boom, it just the answers just pop into your mind. But right. if you don't have the expertise, if you don't have that experience, it, it can be really difficult to sort of trust your gut because you don't have that experience to to support that. So. Right. And and that came to me a lot when I do restructuring. Because I go in thinking, oh my gosh, there's so much here. I don't know this organization. And you got to rapidly mm -hmm. learn that I always felt I wasn't going to get the pieces right mm -hmm. or the form right or the functions right, you know, to, to redo it, let alone all the people issues you're dealing with. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. But it would come at odd times and I'd go, yes, that's how it has to be. Yeah. Uh, even though you've got two months, three months to figure it out, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. it's, it's, it's a stress point. It's a challenge, but you have to slow it down a bit on some of these things. Mm -hmm. um, so I worry yeah. about that for the younger leaders, because I think we're in some cases making rapid decisions before all the, in, and you can never have all the info. Yeah. But before substantial amount of info is put before you. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, that's, yeah. that's a big thing for me. Um, I agree. Marlene, I want to be respectful of your time. I've taken up way, way too much of it already. Um, I know you're retired, but how can people reach you or follow you if, you know, if they have questions or if they'd like to continue the discussion with you, if you're open to that? Yeah. Well, email is my best. I mean, yes, I'm on um, Facebook. Yes, I'm in LinkedIn, but I prefer to just go direct on mm -hmm. um, my email because that's what I respond to pretty quickly. Um, mm -hmm. So the email, and I didn't write it down, but um, it's Thorn, T-H-O-R-N. I think my name's up there. Mm -hmm. No E. <laughs> Um, Marlene, M-A-R-L-E-N-E, -E, 26 at gmail.com. 26 is not my birthday year. It's how many letters are in an alphabet. <laughs> <laughs> so it's thornmarlene26 at gmail. Awesome. And just Thank be sure you. to let me know who you are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because yeah. I don't know who's out on the other end of this. Right. Well, this has been really helpful and you've already given us your tip, which is really to keep learning, which I think I completely yep. agree with. That's one of the things that I love is to keep learning. You, 
you, you continue to grow and so you might as well continue to learn. So I think that's, that's one of those great tips. Yeah. Um, Marlene, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been amazing. I think we're going to have to have you come back and talk more about some of those other activities because you've just done so much. Uh, but I really appreciate you coming on the show. Sure. And thanks for the opportunity too. And I'm happy to come back, you know, whatever's going to be helpful to people out there. And that's pretty much what I'm doing these days. That's awesome. what I love doing. Great. Thank you. And to our listeners, thanks for listening. We hope you'll join us next time. Thank you.